I want to start by saying this is probably the most difficult sermon that I have ever preached. Um, this uh, week I, I poured a lot of time into this and uh, I come into the pulpit with a little bit of, uh, I don't know what to call it, but it's something. So if you're a guest with us today, uh, this is an unusual sermon. I usually preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. Um, So that's not what's going to happen today, so this is a little unique. Infant baptism, also called paedo-baptism, and professing believer's baptism, also called credo-baptism, are big topics deserving careful sermons, many careful sermons. This is one sermon, so it will fall short. Uh, It's a type of introductory sermon. Uh, it's It's particularly challenging and difficult for several reasons. Number one, covenant theology is the foundation of infant baptism. And my assumption is that almost all of you know little to nothing about covenant theology. Could be wrong about that, but I think I'm right. Number two, there is no explicit command to baptize infants in Scripture, nor is there explicit mention of it being done. Number three, we come from different church backgrounds and traditions. Number four, some of you were baptized as infants, but then were rebaptized because you doubted the validity of your first baptism. Five, you're all divided on this issue. This is a challenging and difficult sermon because six, Church tradition may overshadow scripture for some of you, and you may not know why you believe what you believe about baptism. Seven, some of you likely have significant misconceptions about the purpose and meaning of infant baptism. Eight, individuality, feminism, and liberalism have infested evangelical Christianity and no doubt have influenced all of us and muddied the waters on covenant theology and infant baptism. Nine, our sinful nature hinders us from understanding the scripture, and that's for all of us. And ten, biblical illiteracy is epidemic in the American church, and it exists here at Jerusalem Church. On top of all that, I'm insecure about my knowledge of this topic and my ability to communicate it to you thoroughly yet concisely and clearly. It's the day after the Mannheim Project. Many of you are tired. And this sermon is deeply theological, didactic, and requires focused thinking. And it will be longer than usual. And some of you are like, you already go for too long every week. And so I just say all things are possible with God, right? So I will make this sermon manuscript available to you so that you can read over it uh, later if you miss some things or don't understand some things, and that might help you, and I'm certainly willing to dialogue with you. Better sermons have been preached on infant baptism by men with a greater understanding of the topic than me. So this is challenging for me, but God's grace is huge, and I trust that your grace for me will also be huge. Before we get too far, I want to say that whatever your view of baptism, you are welcome and loved here. Amen? Come on. 
You're welcome to be a member. You're welcome to use your gifts. So let's not divide over this issue. Instead, let's enjoy gospel unity and minister together. There are faithful followers of Jesus on both sides of this debate, and we can celebrate that. Also, please understand that here at Jerusalem, we baptize both infants and professing believers. So, whichever your position, we are agreed on much. We have much in common. If you disagree with infant baptism, I'm likely not going to change your mind through this one sermon. Uh, But I hope to help you understand it more. I hope you will investigate covenant theology on your own. Because I think it will greatly strengthen your faith. I think it will greatly um, increase your enjoyment of God. I learned about covenant theology in seminary. I had rejected infant baptism for probably over 25 years up until that point. But within three years of studying covenant uh, theology for the first time, mind you, uh, my view of baptism changed. During my last year of seminary, during a lecture by Dr. Richard Gamble, brilliant man, on circumcision, excuse me, I was finally persuaded with, uh, of infant baptism. Dr. Gamble might not have even mentioned the word baptism in this lecture, but the relationship between circumcision and baptism compelled me to switch views. Infant baptism will make very little sense to you if you don't understand covenant theology. Hence, this is tricky this morning. And the intimate relationship between circumcision and baptism. To understand infant baptism, you must begin with understanding covenant theology as it is presented in Scripture. What is covenant theology? Simply put, covenant theology is a way to understand the storyline of the entire Bible. Covenant theology centers on God's covenants, which permeate Scripture and unify its doctrine. The word covenant, everywhere in Scripture. Everywhere in Scripture. What is a covenant? A covenant is a pact. It's a pledge. It's a promise between two parties. You'll see through, throughout Scripture that God makes covenants with his people, Abraham being our main focus. Ligon Duncan defines a covenant as God's way of confirming or sealing a promise. God made covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Even Jesus talked about the new covenant. The Bible is organized into two covenants or two testaments, the old and the new. I'll draw your attention to two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. What is the covenant of works? It's a covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden. If they obeyed him perfectly, God promised to bless them. If they disobeyed him, God promised that they would die and God honored his promise. What is is the covenant of grace? Daniel Hyde put it like this. The essence of the covenant of grace is the same throughout the Old and New Testament. God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But its historical administration has varied by time and place. End of quote. So at the root of covenant theology is God's gracious promise or pledge that he will save anyone who believes in Christ alone for salvation. He will be their God and they will be his people. 
So the good news of God's sovereign grace is an Old Testament thing and is a New Testament thing. Grace is all throughout Scripture. Think about Genesis 3.15, right early in the Scripture. God promised to raise up a seed and to conquer Satan and save his people. That, the gospel shows up in Genesis 3. That's gospel. That's grace. John Sartell's comment is valuable. He said, quote, Every gospel doctrine has its roots in the Old Testament, end of quote. That's true. That's true. If you believe that, you're on your way to infant baptism. Every gospel doctrine has its roots in the Old Testament. Both testaments, old and new, work to interpret each other. Scripture interprets Scripture. So when we begin to study the topic of infant baptism, we must begin with circumcision in the Old Testament. What does circumcision mean in the Old Testament? Well, circumcision was much, 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 much more than in a marker of ethnic Israel. That's important to know. Circumcision was ultimately, at the highest level, a profoundly spiritual sign pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham, and verse 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That, my friends, is called justification by faith alone. That's the gospel. Keep that in mind. Verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Later in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, God confirmed his covenant with Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God's covenant with Abraham included Abraham's children. Now listen to Genesis 17, 9 through 14, where God commanded circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he had made. And think, who is included in the covenant and who should bear the sign of it? Listen closely. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's key. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and, in, and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham, but Abraham's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on were included in that covenant. 
and it was an everlasting covenant. The covenant promises belong to the children of believers, and they bear the sign. Now watch what happened in Genesis 17, verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, remember the word house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had commanded him, or God had said to him. Abraham believed, yet all the males of his household were to receive the sign of God's covenant showing that all of them were part of God's gracious covenant and God made sure to include infants in that. Circumcision was primarily spiritual. John Sartell wrote, quote, circumcision was a sign of God's salvation to Abraham, end of quote. Paul affirmed that. Listen to Romans 4.11. He, talking about Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of, sealing what? The righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was a sign and seal of justification by faith and the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Circumcision goes much deeper than ethnic Israel. It represented salvation by faith. And infant boys were to bear the sign of salvation before they ever believed. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Moses said to Israel, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Circumcision was about the heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcision was about the heart and circumcision was about God's sovereign grace. Sometime check out Jeremiah 4, 4, Jeremiah 6, 10, and Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. They will help you understand this point. Check out Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, which foreshadows baptism and explains the spiritual circumcision that God performs on the heart. Sometime read Romans 2. Paul explained that circumcision is about the heart. Here's verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision represented what the Spirit of God does in the heart. And yes, unbelieving infants were to receive the sign. Why? Because God commanded it. And because children of believers like Abraham were part of God's covenant. It's critical that you understand that. Circumcision was a billboard advertising God's salvation performed exclusively by God's son, the Messiah. Liam Gallagher wrote this, Christ was cut off for us And his death for our sins is counted by God as our own death. Circumcision symbolizes this reality of Christ's suffering as our substitute. Circumcision was bloody, and so was the cross. Circumcision was a sign 
of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was cut off for sinners, so whoever believes in him will be made clean. That's God's promise. It's his pledge. Circumcision was ultimately about the gospel. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like baptism? When you see the fantastic connection between circumcision and baptism, infant baptism is not far off. Now, keeping circumcision in mind, let's ask the question, what does baptism mean in the New Testament? Baptism signifies the exact same thing that circumcision signified in the Old Testament. It points to God's sovereign covenant of grace. It points to the spiritual cleansing that comes through faith in Christ. It demarcates the covenant community of faith, the church. Dr. Dennis Johnson says this, quote, water baptism symbolizes the same spiritual blessings that circumcision symbolize. Renewal and transformation of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit who brings us into a community of faith, a body. Baptism speaks of being united to Christ, clothed with Christ, right with God by faith, Abraham's seed and heirs of God's promises. It speaks of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection so that his death for us is counted as our death before the justice of God. Baptism and circumcision point to the same thing. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12 helps us to see that. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. There's the connection. In which you also were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism represents the spiritual circumcision that Christ performs in us, the cutting off of the sinful flesh and the resurrection of life by grace through faith. Remember, every gospel doctrine has its roots in the Old Testament. The roots and meaning of baptism trace directly back to circumcision. Receiving baptism, my friends, is a glorious grace of God. It's a joyful sacrament. It points believers and their children to Christ, and it seals all of Christ's benefits to us if we believe. Inside of baptism is God's promise to richly bless you with salvation, intimacy with Him, joy in Him, peace in Him, Eternal life, if and when you believe. If you believe, God will honor every single promise that he has made to you. He will fail at none. And and you see, baptism boosts our confidence in the gospel. It boosts our assurance that God has promised us these realities if we believe. And those promises, my friends, are for our kids. But are they? Are they? Are the children of Christian parents inside or outside the covenant? Listen to how Peter referred back to God's covenant in his sermon at Pentecost. There's a big affirmation here that I want you to get. Acts 2, verses 38 and 39 say this. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Praise God. That is true. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children. Okay. God's gracious covenant still includes children of Christians. Acts 2 connects with Abraham. You can't detach them. The Jews hearing Peter would have naturally connected his words in this sermon back to the Abrahamic covenant. This is what Jesus thought about children. Luke 18, verses 15 and 16. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What a joyful blessing for children. The kingdom belongs to children. There's more. Paul treated children as part of the covenant people of God. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul recognized the identity of children of believers and encouraged them to obey in the Lord. That's significant. That's covenantal language. Same thing in Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Paul assumed that children within their parents' household can live to please the Lord. Paul speaks to children as if they're part of the church. And called them to obey the Lord. Keeping that in mind, in 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul calls the children of at least one believing parent holy. That's the word he used. The same Greek word is sometimes interpreted as saint, which means the people of God. The children of at least one believing parent are holy. They are set apart. They are consecrated. They are very different than children in a pagan home uh, where the parents don't know Jesus and aren't bringing them up in the context of the church. This doesn't guarantee their salvation, but it does show that the children are part of God's covenant people, the church, and should receive the full benefits of the church. What an amazing blessing for children with at least one Christian parent. A baptism marks them. It sets them apart as part of the church. You see, God's covenant promises are for Andrew Shirk. They're for Malachi Thompson as much as they are for us, for you and me. Should we treat these two little guys as though they are outside God's covenant? Please think about that. Shouldn't everyone who is in the covenant bear the sign and seal of the covenant? That would make biblical and historical sense. Now, some of you want chapter and verse for infant baptism. And I just want you to know, I understand that. But in what chapter and verse does God change the covenant status of children and command that they should no longer receive the sign and seal of the covenant. Isn't that the bigger issue that needs to be answered? 
Do you believe that when Jesus Christ came, he kicked out all of the kids from the covenant? Women and uncircumcised Gentiles could bear the sign and the seal under the new covenant. On what biblical basis are children now excluded after Christ came? Where is that in Scripture? It appears that the burden of proof lies with those who believe that infants should not be baptized. Dr. Dennis Johnson rightly mentions that many other changes have occurred when Christ came, and they are clearly explained in the New Testament. Changes like the annulment of circumcision, animal sacrifices, dietary laws, and the temple. Isn't it odd that we find no explanation in Scripture that children are now excluded from the covenant and its many blessings, and the covenant people of God, and should no longer receive the sign and seal of God's covenant. Not only is that a colossal change for Scripture, but it's not mentioned in the New Testament. But the covenant status of, the, of children in, that, that is affirmed in the New Testament. Now, I said earlier that there is no explicit, and I'm using that word carefully, explicit command to baptize infants in Scripture, nor is there explicit mention of it being done. And for some of you, that's case closed. You're done. You're like, nope. And uh, you want to see chapter and verse. So I understand that. But let me challenge you with this thought. Chapter and verse doesn't work for everything. In order to understand some doctrines of Scripture, it requires a more comprehensive study of Scripture There are some dangers with the chapter and verse thinking. So if you're a show-me-infant-baptism-is-commanded-in-scripture type of person, I want you to consider this carefully. In which chapter and verse does Jesus say the words, I am God? Well, none. None. But he did say, I am. And where do you need to go to in Scripture to understand what I am means? The Old Testament. What chapter and verse, this is a great one, directly commands women to take the Lord's Supper? You're not going to find it in Scripture. So let me ask this question. Are any of you ready to argue that women should not participate in the Lord's Supper? Just raise your hand. Stand up. Go ahead. Chapter and verse. Okay. So I hope you're all like, absolutely they should take. And that's right. Because... The context of Scripture strongly suggests that women should take the Lord's Supper. Does chapter and verse logic apply to eschatology or end times? What chapter and verse would you defend your position? It's not going to work. You have to look at multiple books of of the Bible and piece together a sensible view. Here's an important one. What chapter and verse shows a child born of Christian parents and later baptized as an adult upon profession of faith. None. Not in there. There are no second-generation baptisms in Scripture. Check it out for yourself. The credo-baptist argues that this should be done, but they have no chapter and verse to show it. Okay, last one. What chapter and verse explicitly prohibits infants from being baptized and commands that children born to Christian parents must profess faith before baptism. Won't find it. Not in there. 
Why? Because the baptisms in Acts are, as Dr. Dennis Johnson notes, missionary situations in which the gospel is entering the lives of individuals and families and communities for the first time. There is no explicit mention of what happened to the children. We both, whatever your view, we both have some thinking to do, don't we? So to say that there is no chapter and verse for infant baptism proves absolutely nothing. Uh, It makes the issue of baptism a lot more complicated and difficult to understand, but a logical and biblical case can be made for biblical doctrines without chapter and verse. Now, if I told you that my entire household went to Knobles a few weeks ago, um, who would you think went along? All six of us, my entire family. Okay, now keep in mind that God's covenant of grace was made with believers, Abraham, and their entire families, including children, his offspring. In other words, households. I told you to remember house. All throughout the Old Testament, the word household naturally included any children of that household. There's plenty of evidence for that. And we still understand household to be that. Okay, so then, what does household mean in the New Testament? 1 Timothy 3, 4 talks about elders and it says this, he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. There you have it. Children included in the household. Okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 4 says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. Well, there you have it again. The implication that children are included in New Testament households. Now, did all households have children? No. But many, many did. Many, many did. So when we read the term household in Scripture, it is entirely reasonable to believe that children were included. Agreed. Agreed. You can test it. I think you should agree with that. With that in mind, let me read a few verses for you. Acts 16, 14 talks about God opening Lydia's heart to pay attention to Paul's teaching. Then verse 15 says, And after she, Lydia, was baptized and her household as well. So Lydia believed, but all of her household was baptized. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were in prison, and after a traumatic event, read about this, the jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Listen to what they told him. Verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And after hearing the gospel, the jailer believed, praise God's sovereign grace. Nothing is said about anyone else from his household believing. But verse 33 says, And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, maybe only the believing adults got baptized in his household. Well, that's not what the passage says. And listen to verse 34. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Not they. He, the jailer, the jailer believed and the entire household was baptized. Now, both of these cases, in both of these cases, the Bible says that only one person believed. And in both cases, the entire household 
was baptized. So let me ask you one simple question. No matter what your view, just consider this question. Considering covenant theology and how covenant is all through Scripture and the biblical historical meaning of the term household throughout all of Scripture, is it at least reasonable to believe that small children were included in the household baptisms of Lydia and the jailer? Now, let's be fair. No children were mentioned. But also, no place says that they were were not included in the household baptism. Knowing what we do about the Old Testament, it would be reasonable to infer that children were baptized too. Credo Baptist at this point might object and say, nothing is said about infants. Only the believers of the household were baptized because baptism is only for believers. But my friends, the text doesn't say that. Credo Baptists interpret these passages with their presupposed Theology, they're bringing something to the text. Paedo-Baptists might say, remember covenant theology. Remember that children are included in the covenant. Remember the meaning of household. It is reasonable to think that children were baptized in these passages. But the text doesn't say that. Paedo-Baptists interpret these passages using covenant theology. They're bringing a system to the text as a way to interpret it. So you know what this means, my friends? Both sides have presuppositions. Both sides. We must be honest about that. You and I have beliefs that we bring to the interpretation of the text. We pull from other places of Scripture and our understanding to understand what these things mean. But I think we can agree that God has a particular plan for families in both the Old and the New Testaments. And it's important not to divorce the New Testament from its strong, strong connections to the Old Testament. You need to determine in your heart whether covenant theology is biblical. That's the starting point. In a sense, forget about infant baptism. Start with covenant theology to see if that is scriptural, biblical. If it is, then you must strongly consider whether infant baptism is true and right according to the scripture. And though it is not explicitly explained because of the trajectory of all of redemptive history, it's implicitly explained. Why would they go out of their way to explain something that's been around for so many years of Jewish history? There is one more significant point that I want to mention. Thank you so much for bearing with me. Um, but th- this argument doesn't come from Scripture. <laughs> All right. Uh, so what I'll say is Scripture is our rule. All the other things must absolutely come under Scripture. But I want to at least tell you this and for you to think about it. Okay? So weigh it carefully. This is not Scripture. I'll begin this point with a quote from Dr. John MacArthur. I love this. Who is a firm credo-baptist and rejects infant baptism. And I love Dr. John MacArthur. He has deeply influenced me. Love the man. We disagree. So please listen closely and consider MacArthur's point. This is from a Credo Baptist. For the most part, historically, Christianity has been marked by infant baptism. In fact, from about the 4th century on, infant baptism has been the norm in the Christian church. A credo-baptist said that. 
For most of Christian history, infant baptism has been widely believed and practiced. Before 165 AD, Justin Martyr seems to reference infant baptism. Before 202 AD, Irenaeus seems to reference infant baptism. Before 220 AD, Tertullian commented that infant baptism was common in his day. Before 254 AD, Origen commented, quote, For this also it was, that the church had from the apostles a tradition or order to give baptism even to infants. End of quote. Infant baptism was accepted by each of the 66 bishops at the Council of Carthage in 253 AD. Before 430 AD, Augustine concluded that infant baptism was widely practiced in the church. Even the heretic Pelagius before 420 A.D., used infant baptism as an attempt to try to prove his orthodoxy. He wrote this, We hold likewise one baptism which we aver ought to be administered to infants in the same sacramental formula as it is to adults. Louis Burkhoff noted that infant baptism's legitimacy was not denied until the days of the Reformation when the Anabaptists opposed it. Understand that the overwhelming practice from the time of the apostles to the, uh, in the first century to the 16th century was clearly, without a doubt, is that too strong, God? Without a doubt, clearly infant baptism. History is on the side of the Pado baptists Now, from my heart to you, why in the world does this matter? When I baptize my infant son, Andrew, next week, he will receive the sign and seal of God's covenant with me and him. God's promise is as much for little Andrew as it is for me. Andrew's baptism will be a great and joyful blessing for me and my entire household and you, the family of God. Um, Andrew's baptism will remind all the believing households in here of the pledge that God has made to us. Like Joshua, Jonathan Shirk has said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that includes every single one of my children. Andrew is a part of my household, and he has given tremendous blessings in being a part of a Christian family where his parents and his brothers and sister love Jesus Christ. Andrew will receive the sign and seal of baptism, not because he is without a doubt saved. That's not the point. But because God has set him apart as holy, and he is a part of the covenant people of God, the visible church, he is part of Jerusalem. His baptism will point to the promise of God that, to my son, if Andrew believes, then God will honor his promise and he will save Andrew. Andrew can grow up with the assurance 
that if he believes he is united to Christ, he is regenerated by God, he is washed clean of all his sins and the pollution of his soul by the blood of Jesus and empowered to walk in newness of life by the Holy Spirit, I will raise my son to repent of his sins and to trust in Christ alone for salvation so that I hope Andrew never knows the day where he cannot say, I have always loved the Lord. I have always repented of my sins and trusted in a holy God. Your baptism reminds you of the promise that God made to you. Just like circumcision reminded Israel that if they, belong, that, that if they believed they belonged to God and should serve him, your baptism reminds you of the same thing. Allow your baptism to continually encourage you to believe, to believe, to trust in Christ alone who saves. It should point us all there. Whatever your view, allow your baptism to point you to the cross. Andrew's baptism will point to the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And how do we know this? By scripture alone. Andrew will not understand his baptism now. But doesn't that reflect God's sovereign grace that comes to undiscerning and stupid and foolish sinners dead in their sins and transforms them? Isn't that baptism an emphasis on God's sovereign grace? So whatever your view of baptism is, it's not magic. It doesn't save anyone. It doesn't save my son. It doesn't save you. Christ alone saves. But it is a sign of God's gracious promise to you. And if you're a believer, and if you have a Christian household, to your kids. Baptism points to the promise of God's covenant grace that when we do believe, we will be saved. Absolutely, 100%, every time, God will honor his promise and save you. Look to God, look to Christ. Allow every baptism you witness to remind you over and over again that God has made a promise to you. He has made a promise to you and he will keep his promise. He will keep that, all of his promises. And if you trust in Christ alone, you will have your greatest joy and pleasure in him forever because, my friends, it is an everlasting covenant. Let's pray. God, I love my brothers and sisters at Jerusalem Church, and I was fearful of this sermon a little bit. God, I am sorry. Forgive me. God, would you give us a spirit of unity? Because I know in church history, this topic has caused such vicious division. I don't want that. In some ways, I don't even want to preach this sermon, because then it just makes things all messy in church, and people can get all their get all bent out of shape and argue with each other. And we are a divided church on this issue, but God, could it be that at Jerusalem Church, this issue would not have to divide us? I wonder if you could unite Pado-Baptist and Credo-Baptist alike in the membership and ministry of this church and catapult us forward, being sensitive that our church does stand on Pado-Baptism, but uh, we welcome those even into leadership who don't embrace that position. And so, God, give us unity. Give us grace. For people who are like, Pastor, you are way off. (laughs) Read your Bible. 
I just pray that they can understand covenant theology a little bit better and why those who embrace paedo-baptism would believe it. And I believe, and, and I pray God too, that those who embrace paedo-baptism but had no idea why, that you just encourage them, that they'd see a little bit more about God's covenant, that your awesome covenant with us and your promise with us. So God, I, I'm just praying that you give us a spirit of unity and that you help us move ahead and that you help those, all of us, discern this issue so that we can believe what the Bible teaches. For your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you uh, for listening.